turn to Ephesians chapter 4, passage of Scripture we read last Sunday evening. I want to read it again because uh, of the content of this passage and the impact it has on the subject that we're going to be looking at in just a few moments this evening in uh, family relationships. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 17. Ephesians 4:17. This is one of the great transition passages that explains the impact salvation makes on the life of a believer in transforming them from someone who is selfish and worldly into someone who is like Christ, and then the practical ramifications of that in our daily lives. One of those practical ramifications is the relationships we have with people, particularly in our homes. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling. Boy, that ties back to Romans 1 where it talks about the third and final level of God's judgment on a culture when, when people are given over to a reprobate, reprobate mind and they don't have the convictions of what right and wrong that was known in previous generations, and the entire culture begins to, to uh, spin out of control because the people can't think. They're past the ability to feel what's right and what's wrong. And this is the way that the unsaved live, but not the way we Christians live. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for ye are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We are looking at the subject this evening of anger. This is a more difficult subject in personal relationships. Um, as we have uh, considered in the last couple of weeks, the understanding and acceptance and change are crucial to building strong relationships in, 
in homes. But sometimes people don't accept the uniqueness of their spouse. They, they begin to focus on what they don't have and what they don't uh, feel that uh, their needs are met. And, and it's easy for unmet needs to begin a vicious downward cycle that, resists, that results in resentment, bitterness, and anger. And this evening, I want to encourage us that uncontrolled emotions destroy marriages, but we have the power to control our emotions. Uncontrolled emotions do ruin relationships, but uncontrolled emotions are a choice we make. It's not a necessity that we have no choice or control over. We do have control over our emotions, and that's an important lesson for us to learn. Anger is a very real problem in a lot of people's relationships. And over the years, I probably have had more married couples contact me for marriage counseling over the issue of anger, uncontrolled anger in the home than any other topic. Uncontrolled emotions really do destroy relationships. They destroy marriages. They wreak havoc in homes. The result of layers upon layers of no communication or faulty communication. A huge lack of understanding of one another. That turned into resentment. Resentment became bitterness. and Bitterness boiled over in anger. And, and anger made it impossible to live together. And to have any semblance of happiness and joy. Instead of two people giving to meet the needs of each other. Two people were focused on their own self. And what their spouse wasn't doing. In order to make their life meaningful. And the overflow of, of the sense of not being appreciated, not being understood, uh, whittled away at their relationship to the point that it blew up as we witnessed in the, in the, little, in the little video. But the, we could, you know... When I used this little video clip at a marriage retreat years ago, we spent some time as a group analyzing the conversation that occurred in that evening, identifying what the unfulfilled expectations were to the husband and what the unfulfilled expectations were to the wife and how they focused upon their own selves, their own hurt, their own lack because of their spouse and how that they became very selfish and self-focused rather than focused on how they could understand, appreciate and change in themselves to be able to bring joy into the life of their spouse. Uncontrolled emotions really do destroy marriages, but I am so grateful to God that he enables us to control our emotions. Unsafe people may have an excuse for that. Christians have no excuse for that. Because we have, in the transformed life of a Christian, 
We have the power to be like Christ. And if we become susceptible to uncontrolled emotion and outbursts of anger, it's because we made a choice to react that way. It's not because we had to do that. We have a choice. And that's what I want us to see just for a moment in God's Word. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter number 4. I want us to see two amazing options that we have when we are experiencing something that, that we don't agree with, that we don't particularly like, that we wished it were different. And we have two options and a choice to make regarding those two options. And it's amazing to me that the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, opens with some, some uh, interaction, some inter-family interaction. And the book of Genesis ends with a separate family and some inter-family situations and reactions. And, and the, the book of Genesis, when introduced to the very first family that God created, the very first time we see the family interacting together, it, it winds out of control and ends up with uncontrolled emotions, deep anger, and one brother murdering another in anger. The book of Genesis ends with another family, with great internal family turmoil, mistreatment, wrongdoing, and a family member making a better choice than the family that was at the beginning of Genesis. Isn't this amazing? The first book of the Bible opens up the human history story, and the book opens and closes with family dysfunction, and it gives us an example and an illustration of one family that made a bad choice. They chose the wrong option. And it ends, the book of Genesis ends with another family and a family member who made a good choice. And the result was so different. And we learn from this that we can control our emotions. We do make choices as to how we react to what happens to us and around us. And it's our spirit controlled life that enables us to make good choices and react in a way that is beneficial rather than that destroys relationships. So you're there in Genesis number, chapter number four. Of course, we have this story here of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And you know the story of how Cain and Abel were required to bring an offering to God. They brought the offering to God. God accepted the offering that Abel brought, and he rejected the offering that Cain brought, and it introduced us to a very difficult inter-sibling rivalry. God rejected the sacrifice of the older son and accepted the sacrifice of the younger son, and we can only imagine the jealousy and defensiveness that Cain wrestled with in his own heart. How dare God? I'm the oldest son. I'm the oldest of the siblings. And God rejected me. But he accepted my kid brother's offering. Rivalry. Anger. Jealousy. That spun out of control. And we read in verse number 5. God said to Cain... 
But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Here's a picture of a reaction to what he did not like. He did not like the fact that God rejected his offering. He did not like the fact that God accepted his, uh, his uh, kid brother's offering. And so, how is he going to react to this situation? He reacted in anger. The Bible says he was very wroth. And we're introduced to wrath, to anger, in a family relationship right here in Genesis 4. And so, Cain is wroth, very wroth, the Bible says. He is boiling over with the emotion of anger, so much so that his countenance fell. You could see it in his face. As soon as God rejected his offering, you could see it in his eyes. You could see the tension in the muscles of his face. You could see the tension in his neck. His face fell. His countenance fell. He dropped. It, the joy was gone. The acceptance was gone. The, the, here he brought this offering, the best he could bring God and I can just imagine that he was excited that God was going to receive his offering, but God rejected his offering. That's a whole other story as to why that happened. But the fact that it happened, Cain is faced with a choice. And he's angry. And he makes a choice. God said to him in verse number 6, The Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fall? Now notice verse 7, If thou doest well. Shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. God's response of if and if not tells us that Cain had a choice to make. He was presented with two options. Cain doesn't like the situation. He's angry at the situation. But God gives him two options. He has a choice to make. If he'll make the right choice, it'll go well for Cain. If he makes the wrong choice, it won't go so well. And God pictures it graphically. He pictures sin lying at the door. The, the Hebrew language, the terminology pictures sin as a beast, as a lion, as some kind of a an animal crouching at the door, waiting for Cain to walk out the door. And if Cain makes the decision to be angry and to not do what was right, sin was waiting to crouch and overcome him and dominate him. A man dominated by sin, reacting with anger. That was one of the potential choices in front of him. Sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. There's a choice of whether Cain will rule over his emotions, whether he'll rule over the temptation, whether he will take responsibility for his actions, whether he will make the right decision, do the right thing, and it'll go well with him, or whether Cain will be ruled by his emotions, ruled by his anger, ruled by the sin that wants to destroy him, and it will not go very well. And that's what happened. Cain went out and murdered his brother in a fit of anger. We have an example here, a story here that teaches us an important lesson, and that is anger is a reaction 
to something that happens around me or to me. And I have a choice on how I'm going to react to that which happens. I don't have to be angry. That's a choice. I don't have to be controlled by my emotions. I can control my emotions. God intended, verse 7 says, thou shalt rule over him. God intended for Cain to rule over his emotions, to make the right choice, to do the right thing, and to have the blessings of God and a joy-filled sibling relationship with his kid brother. That was God's choice to rule your own emotions. Proverbs talks about this over and over again. Let me just read a couple of quick ones. You've got, well, you've got them on your little worksheet there. Proverbs 16:32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh his city. Imagine God says that if you have the ability, or you have the ability, if you make the choice, if you will be slow to anger and rule your spirit, you are stronger than a mighty army that can overcome the walls of a city and take the city. You think of a mighty army and you think of the battlements and you think of the, the coming up against a walled city and what they have to do to break those walls down and to be able to get into that city and overcome that city. They're strong. They're mighty. They conquered that city. God says, if you can conquer your emotions, you're stronger than that. If you will learn how to control your emotions, you are more mighty than that army he described. Proverbs 25, 28 says, He that hath no rule over his spirit is like a city that is broken down without walls. If you don't control your emotions, if you, allow your, if you make the choice to allow what happens to you to cause you to get angry, and that's your choice, to get angry and to live out the emotional outbursts that you feel, if, if you have no rule over your own spirit, you're like a city that has no walls. It doesn't take much of anything to defeat you. And you know, that's an interesting verse to meditate on for a while and think of the ramifications of that. If you are a person that has never gotten control of your emotions, and when you don't like what someone does or you didn't like, don't like what happens around you, you react with anger. If you have no rule over your emotions, it doesn't take anything to ruin your day. It's easy for Satan to mess your day up. Your spouse, your boss, your neighbor, your whoever can do just about any little old thing and set you off. You've got buttons all over the place waiting for someone to push them and you just go off. You have no protection because you don't rule your spirit. So what we see here at the early part of Genesis is we see that a story, an illustration here of someone who couldn't rule their emotions. And so they murdered their brother. Then, then just flip back to uh, Genesis chapter 41. And let me show you the impact of, a, of another family who made a different decision regarding sibling rivalry. You know, the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph fills Genesis 37 to 50 to the end of the book. It is the most detailed story in the book of Genesis, telling us the most details about any family and and, and it's a dysfunctional family. There were dif dysfunctional parents. 
Parents that played favorites amongst their own kids. Parents that set their kids up for problems. They were dysfunctional parents. Uh, there, there was a, 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 a filled with sibling rivalry. And, and brothers hating brothers. There's hatred. There's rivalry. And, and it culminates when Joseph is a... By the way, Joseph was 17 years old when he's introduced to the story. And he's introduced to the story as a 17-year-old. And almost immediately we find out what the sibling rivalry is all about. And Joseph finds himself at the bottom of a pit, listening to his brothers up at ground level, talking about whether they're going to murder him or sell him into slavery, send him off to Egypt as a slave. Sibling rivalry to its extent. And, of course, you know the story. He ends up in Egypt. All kinds of things happen. Uh, his life is an up and a down and an up and a down. People do him wrong. His character, his, his, uh, his ability to control his emotions and make wise decisions and live out a character life enabled him to advance in every situation he was in. And he would advance and then someone would do him wrong and off to jail, and he would advance, and off to jail, and his life was up and down. Finally, he finds himself at the zenith of his power in Egypt, second in command of the most powerful nation in the world, and his 11 brothers, well, 10 of them anyway, at his feet, begging him to sell them bread to keep the family alive back in Canaan, and they don't even recognize him, they don't even know that's... Our brother that we sold into slavery. And here's Joseph with all of the memories of sibling rivalry. All the memories of hatred. Listening in his mind's remembrance. His brothers talk about are we going to murder him or are we going to make him a slave and get rid of him. All of that building over the years. And here's Joseph with his brothers at his feet. Begging him to sell them bread to keep them alive. What's Joseph going to do? He remembers the hatred, the vengeance, the anger. And then Joseph, in chapter 41, in verse number 51, Joseph bears children. And verse, 50, uh, verse uh, 51, Joseph called his firstborn Manasseh, for God, he said, he hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. You read the story carefully, it's obvious. Forgetting does not mean the lack of ability to recall. Forgive, forgetting is not the lack of ability to recall. Oh, he could recall. He remembered. He remembered what they did to him. And that comes out in later conversations in the story, particularly in chapter 50. But he said, God has enabled me to let go of it. He has enabled me to forget what they did to me. I choose not to remember how they hurt me. Joseph made a wise decision. It was a choice. It was a choice to forget the pain. The sting of painful memory. The bitterness was gone. You know, no psychologist can accomplish this in the life of a person. He said, God made me to let go of all of that angst. 
This is emotional healing at its best. God supernaturally touched the heart of Joseph and enabled Joseph to let go of all that was done against him. And he named his son. God has enabled me to forget all the toil. You know, one of most, Satan's most powerful tools is the memory to play back the recording of what they said and what they did. To sit there and stew over what that person did to me. To hit the rewind and play and rewind and play if you read and remember what a cassette tape player looked like. The ability to stew over what people did to me is one of Satan's most powerful tools. To hear those hurtful words over and over again. To watch those ugly scenes over and over again. And every hurt that Joseph endured was unjustified. The hurt that he endured from his brothers was totally unjustified. It was not something he did to deserve it. And yet God made him to forget. Now, again, forgetting is not amnesia. The facts were there. But the pain that could paralyze him in the present, he let go of it. Forgetting means that you purpose to not relive the hurt. That you release the one who caused your pain. And you not hold them accountable in your heart for what they did. I read a story once about the Moravian missionaries. They were an amazing group of missionaries back in Christian history. They... Uh, came to North America to work amongst the, uh, the far north, amongst the, the, the inhabitants in the far north of North America, Eskimos, Inuits, whatever. And, and, and as they tried to, to uh, dialogue and, and, and learn how to communicate with these people, they could, not, they could not find a word in their language that conveyed the concept of forgiving. And they struggled. How do you teach the gospel when there's no concept of forgiveness in the language and experience of the people group to whom you're trying to minister. And so they labor to try to figure out how to convey this. They finally, as they learn more and more about the language and the culture, they finally got a whole string of words. Let me spell you the word that they came up with. I-S-S-U-M-A-G-I-J-O-U-J-U-N-G-N-A-I-N-E-R-M-I-K. They took a whole string of Inuit words and strung them together. And you know what those words meant? Not being able to think about it anymore. What does it mean to forget what my brothers did to me? It doesn't mean amnesia. It means a choice, a choice that I won't think about it anymore. Joseph made a great choice. By the way, he had a second son. Look in verse 52. His second son was named Ephraim. For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. He named his son. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You don't have to escape the situation to be able to be fruitful. You can be fruitful in the land of your affliction. And Joseph learned that, that he could be fruitful. He could recover his, his sanity, his life, his joy, his service for God 
in the land of affliction, not if he could get away from the land of affliction. Joseph made a wise choice to not hold his brothers accountable, but to release them from the obligation of what they had done to him and to be able to never remember the pain that they had brought to him again and to enjoy the prosperity of God in the land of his affliction in spite of what had been done to him. And so Genesis ends with a great story of a man who made better choices than Cain made. What do I learn in all that? I simply learn in all that that I have a choice when it comes to my emotions. And every time something happens around me that I don't like, every time someone does something to me that hurts me, I have a choice to make. Will I react in anger and hold them accountable for what they did? Will I learn how? To never think about it again and to let them free from my heart emotion and to enjoy prosperity in the land of my affliction. Hard choice. How do you make that choice? Well, Lord willing, we'll see that next week in our final evening thinking about uh, relationships here on Sunday nights.